Well, grace to you. My own, can you hear me? We are, I can never hear myself. It's very crazy. Yeah, thank you, Tim. And thank you for all your work putting all this together in 10 minutes. Um, and this is weird seeing your faces in here. I'm telling you, you're throwing me. Uh, but it's good to be here. And uh, if you are visiting today, what an honor it is. I'm Shane, and uh, you are in part three now of a four-part series that I thought we would do during the season of Pentecost, the season of the Holy Spirit, where we're really talking about the Holy Spirit. And what is the, who is the Holy Spirit? What is the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church? And uh, a couple of weeks ago, one of the first things we can say about the Spirit, I wonder if you remember this, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit descended on the disciples and gave them the ability to do what? Does anybody remember? To speak. He set their tongues on fire so they could make a verbal, verbal confession of faith. Hello, young man. Um, <laughs> and uh, so we, the Spirit is in you for speech. Really, it's, it's critical to remember that. Then last week, we talked about the seven gifts that, that church believes that all of us have in common because we share in the same Spirit of Jesus the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit is in us to make us holy. I mean, really to give you the mind of Christ. You know, the word that I've been using is to Christify you. That was last week, and so I, I wonder if you realize what the theme is today, if you didn't see the Realm Post, based on the songs that we have already sung, that the, the Holy Spirit, another major role, the work of the Spirit, is the Spirit is an agent of unity. That the Holy Spirit really wants to unify God's people and unify the world. So I'm going to be reading uh, this morning from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the fourth chapter, just a few verses there, and uh, I'm going to invite you to stand as you are able for the reading of the Scripture, and yeah, we've actually got them up here too. Tim, you're amazing. There we go. Here's what Paul says, and I want you to notice how many times he says the word one in a few minutes. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, and he was probably really in prison, I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. And then in verse 14, Paul says, we must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming, but... Speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth, building itself up in love. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, so unity. Um, Just a few thoughts on this. Uh, One of the things that we can absolutely say with confidence is that the God that we worship here is a God who desires unity. That's obvious. It should be obvious. And here's an interesting thing. Ours is a God who desires unity within the world without diminishing in any way the diversity of the world. I mean, you think about creation, you know, all the life. I mean, it's just teeming with life and insects and people and just all kinds of different species. And everything almost works together. There's this symbiotic relationship between the living things. And we depend on other living things even for our existence if you kind of break this down. 
You think about the God that we Christians worship. I've been bringing this up for the last couple of weeks. We as Christians believe, yes, we believe in one God, but we believe that God is one in three persons. Three divine relations. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This unity of God, but the unity of God is through God's plurality. It's a great mystery. So all of creation is supposed to be a reflection of this unity through diversity. This is what it is. Now, what we find in the Bible very quickly in the book of Genesis is that human beings are the ones who resist this divine likeness, this unity through diversity. The book of Genesis, God makes the world, and it doesn't take very long before sin enters the picture, the nature of sin. And if you watch closely, if you read closely, what does sin do to the world? It splinters everything off. Uh, Adam and the animals are now in enmity with each other. Or Adam and Eve, they both blame each other for the other sins. Cain slays Abel. Wickedness pervades the earth. And then in the first few chapters of Genesis, we know that God regrets having created the world. So the sin kind of creates this fragmentation in the world. But yet God, in the 12th chapter of Genesis, calls a man named Abram, or maybe Abraham. And he says, through you, Abraham, I'm going to restore the world's unity. I'm going to go about the project of restoring the world's unity. And through you, Abraham, all the peoples of the world are going to be blessed. Unity. If you trace a little bit further down through the scriptures, there's a moment in the life of Israel where this looks like it's coming to pass. Through the man, the character named King David. King David shows up. And for the first time, what does he do? He, he unites the 12 tribes of Israel. And it looks at long last that God's promise is coming to pass. And that unity of Israel will then leak out to the rest of the world. The whole world will be called together under the one God of Israel. But then David messes it up. Sin comes back into it. And then Israel is splintered off again, divided. And then the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah They all say, but wait a minute, no, God's not going to give up on the restoration of unity. The days are going to come, the prophet starts saying, when there will be another king like David, that's important, the Messiah, the Mashiach, and this Mashiach, Messiah, he will bring unity to Israel, and he will bring unity then to the world through himself, the Mashiach, the Messiah. Now think about Now, the the story of Jesus, we believe he's the Mashiach, Hebrew, the Messiah, right? Notice what happens. Jesus bursts onto the scene. He preaches that there is a kingdom of God coming near, the empire of God. God's rule is coming into the world. And look at what Jesus begins to do. He begins to start gathering people to himself. He calls 12 disciples. What do you think that's a symbol of? Which, the 12 what? The 12 tribes of Israel. He calls 12 disciples to himself. Then, what does he do? He goes out into the very margins of society, way out here, and he begins to bring people who are on the margins to himself again. Bringing him all kinds of... Sorry, I guess I cannot move without wearing this. So, So he brings sinners and tax collectors, all these people to himself, to eat with him. And this radical act of, of table fellowship to himself... He prays at the end of John's gospel. We've referred to this where Jesus says to his father, he says, Father, I pray that my people will be one as you and I, Father, are one. So think of Jesus as the gatherer. It's who he is. 
He's trying to unite the world to himself the way King David had done. But there was an opposing power against the ministry of Jesus. The Satan, right? Think about the word diabolical. You ever heard that word before? Diabolical. It comes from the Greek word diabolos. Diabolos. It's the same word that we can translate as devil, the diabolos. The literal meaning of diabolos is the scatterer, the divider. See, the work of the devil, the work of the demonic, sin or evil, however you want to call it, that is the power that divides. That is the power that scatters. God is a unifying force, power. The Holy Spirit wants to unify, but it is the work of the devil to scatter. That's what sin does. That's what evil does. There's a saying in the ancient church that says wherever we see division and hostility, there's sin and there's evil at work. That's what the diabolical always does. And that is why Paul, in our lesson, he does this in other letters, he keeps hammering this point over and over over again. There's one, 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 one. Did you catch all this? One faith, one Lord, one baptism, one hope, one God, one Father of all, one Spirit. Maintain the unity of the Spirit. He keeps banging this drum of unity. And why does he want to do this? Because he's calling the Christians that we, the people of God, we're the ones who are called to resist the scattering forces of evil, the scattering powers of sin and the devil. We have the work. Why? Why? Because it is the mission of God. It is the mission of the Holy Spirit to gather the world to God's self through us, the people of God. That's the church's responsibility, our calling. And of course, I don't have to belabor this point. Boy, has the church done a great job of this or what? I mean, you just study church history and you can read about inquisitions and doctrinal disputes and what we have over 35,000 denominations now in Christianity, witch hunts in the past. I mean, we, we have been a dividing force very often in the world. Uh, there was someone who argued not too long ago now, you think about our polarized society today, how, how divided we are as a society. I'm so scared to move now. Uh, we're, we're, we're so polarized, but somebody made a very good argument. I can't go into the details that the, it is the church that's responsible for the polarization of our society, that we're responsible. Why? Because in the Western world, especially for the last 2,000 years, it's been the church that has taught the world that when you disagree with each other, split. And so we have trained the rest of civilization that if you can't agree, you just divide. And of course, if you think about it, once we split off from one another, and we've referred to this, then that's when you begin to create these camps of the like-minded, and that's when you become extremely arrogant. That's, that's where pride really can do its work when we're in the, the camps of the like-minded. I mean, we, we, we do this all the time. And of course, and when we're around the, around the people who are like us, we fall into that phenomenon that should not be news to you, but we begin to say everybody else who's not like us, they're all the same. You know, those Catholics, they're all the same. Uh, th- those, uh, those Hispanics and white people, all the same. Uh, those Presbyterians, all the same. Those Baptists, all the same. I kind of want to say that, but I'm not going to go there. You know, <laughs> 
I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. They're all the same. See, this, this is what happens. And then when we fall into that habit, and this is what happens when we're never with other people like us, is that we swell with this sense of rightness. We're right. They're all the same. But we're the good people. Too bad they're not. Think about uh, technology. I love technology. How many of you brought your smartphones with you? You don't have to show them. But uh, some people have said this. If I had mine, eh, doesn't matter. Um, some of you know this. These software companies, these big corporations, they use what's called an algorithm. You've heard of this? Now, what they're doing, it's a business model. They are tracking exactly what you like. They are tracking the news you like, the opinions you prefer, the products you like. I've, been, I've seen the little cookies, the little ads, like, you bought this, you might enjoy this. And there are those sociologists who are saying that it's this technology, as good as it is, this is conducing to the division in our society. That way we only hear the viewpoints. We only receive the news from things that back up our line of thinking. And all this does is it confirms our own sense of rightness, these algorithms. I was thinking this week, I was sharing this with other people, uh, say, was this, is this worth saying? But here's my idea. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit follows an algorithm. And if you read your scriptures, and if you follow the algorithm of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will never bring people into your life who think like you. The Holy Spirit's algorithm is to put you in positions and to put you in, in front of people and, in, and into places that will shatter your own sense of rightness. See, this is what the Holy Spirit wants to do, to shatter my sense of rightness, your sense of rightness, to bring some kind of unity. I read a book uh, a couple of weeks ago, delightful book in which the author he says this he says what you and I do as Christians in the church we we so get it wrong here's how we think of unity he said we think we get together in our worship space and we think uh, man if only people would come to us and see how wonderful we are and how hospitable we are then we would have unity if they would just come here but you don't find the Holy Spirit doing this to the early disciples. The Holy Spirit, it's not like the disciples are waiting for people to come. The Holy Spirit sends the people out to places like Samaria, to non-Jewish territory. In other words, what we need to do, and this is the real challenge, we've got to have the mindset where we have got to go to people who are not like us instead of waiting for them to come to us. That's how it'll change. That's a supreme challenge. Why? Because this is not natural. It is not natural for us to do that. It takes something supernatural, the Holy Spirit, to do this. And then he goes on to say this. He's talking about the big corporations like Google or GM. The big corporations and the military, they have figured this out already. These big corporations, they know in the military that if you want to succeed, you have got to get people in the boardroom who come from all different walks of life, all different kinds of opinions. Why? Because you can't innovate. You can't think differently if that's the case. And he says the church is the one last institution in the world where we're still huddled up in our camps of like-mindedness and we wonder, well, why can't I innovate? Why can't things happen? Why can't we go forward? It's because we're too alike in our thinking. And this is what the church is doing over and over again. You know, I'll remind you of what I said uh, a few weeks ago, uh, about four or five weeks ago. Do you remember this? That it's a story of Jesus going into Samaria, and I said that the word conversation 
is very close to the word conversion. Do you remember that? Like some of the greatest conversion experiences we will ever have in life is when we have a conversation with someone. Now, I I do not want to sound Pollyanna. Everything's great. Kumbaya. This is hard. But what we are starting to lose and we have to recapture is that we actually need each other. Our differences more than we want to admit. This is Pollyanna. It can sound that way. This is not Pollyanna. But I was thinking about this this week. You know, if you were to go back to me, my life as a young Christian, I was new to the faith. The people that I hung around for the first few years of my formation were what we would call kind of fundamentalist Christians. Um, I hate labels like this. Very, very traditionalist Christians, very traditional views of the Bible. Now, if you were to put me in the same room today with, with those people who are around me during my formative years, I would probably disagree with them on 99% of everything. Now, I will tell you, though, that they did instill in me a love for the Bible. And I need to know this. I have to know it. And then a few years later, especially in seminary, I came across really for the first time in my life the kinds of people, using labels again, but we would call progressive Christians. Boy, do they challenge my way of thinking. How I read the scriptures, everything. But what the progressive Christians taught me is that, you know, social justice matters. People matter. People that are being hurt by the church, by society, these people matter. I I learned that from them. And the thing is, is that we can be all social justice and not know a lick of the Bible. And we can be all knowers of the Bible and not give a lick about social justice, but we lose something when we do that. And what we do is is we need each other. See, the thing is, is that we have come to think of unity as being united in our opinion. That is a dangerous kind of unity. Unity of opinion leads to arrogance. What the Bible talks about, what you find in the Scriptures, is that the early church, the Christians, they were united in one thing, and that was their common love for Jesus Christ. Not in their opinions, but in their common love for Christ. So so Christ, their love for Jesus, that was the center. That was the anchor. You can read the letter of Galatians. You know, Peter the disciple and Paul the apostle, boy, they were at loggerheads all the time. They disagreed. There were conferences that were formed when Peter ate with a non-Jew. Oh, my Lord! There was disagreement. But what held the early Christians together was their common love for Christ and the common mission to make disciples. They were more united in their love for Christ than they were their interpretation. Am I making sense? I'm sharing with my, uh, the, the traditional services here. Since you're in the traditional space, I'll tell you this. If you look at the Apostles' Creed in your bulletin, and other people have pointed this out, you will notice that you will not find a single clause about the Bible. In all, here I go again. In all the Apostles' Creed, it's waking you up. It's the sign of the Lord. <laughs> not one clause about the Bible. What you find is that we pledge our allegiance to Jesus. 
and we unite in our confession around him. So you see what I mean by unity? We're united in our love, our common love, our common commitment for Jesus Christ. Not necessarily our opinions. Opinions can matter, but that's not what anchors the unity of the Holy Spirit. I think about that uh, book I just referenced a few minutes ago. Uh, there's a great story i got to share with you, and I'll be done. Um, the, the pastor, the, the author of this book tells the story of a church, a very large, affluent church in Dallas, Texas. In this large, affluent congregation, they said, uh, we, we got some money to spend. We need to do something. God's going to call us to do something really big. So they began to pray together, what is the Lord calling us to do? And uh, they discerned that there were some children who lived along the Mexico and Texas border who had terrible classrooms. And uh, that they, these kids, they needed classrooms. And so they prayed together, how much money is this going to cost to, to build these classrooms? And they said, well, it doesn't matter. This is what God is calling us to do. So they, they, they began the planning process of building these classrooms along the Texas-Mexico border. Well, the local news picks up this story. And they report what's going on. Here's this church that wants to build these classrooms for these kids. And, uh, well, there was a, a, a Southern Baptist minister who was watching the news that night. And he saw this, and he said, my church has got to help with this initiative. Went back to his church. He cast this vision. And then this church, this, this Baptist congregation, said, yes, we're going to build these classrooms. Well, the day came for them to break ground together. They, they had, had phone calls, but they came together. <laughs> but what the news never said and what this church never said and what the, uh, the Southern Baptist congregation never knew was that this congregation that had spearheaded this initiative was an LGBT congregation. <laughs> so they got off the bus and everybody looked at each other like this. <laughs> well, what I read is that both congregations said, you know what, we could go coop our, lock ourselves into rooms and we can dispute and fight and talk about what the Bible says, but you know what will happen? These classrooms won't get built. And so this church and this other church totally different they united with what the mission of God to build those classrooms my friends that's what Christian unity looks like now you know I'm almost done we, we're our denomination now the United Methodist Church and if I were staying with you I would I would I would say more about this but our denomination right now is embroiled in this debate over human sexuality and our denomination right now is asking the question can we stay united is it possible for us to be united over this issue? I do not have the answer. But I will tell you two things that I have learned over the last few years. The first is this. Neither side of this debate will ever make a case so that the other side says, Wow, you're right! I never knew that. Let's just get along now no that will never happen the second thing uh, that I have learned is this right there's there's making the case that will never happen the second thing that I have learned and I forgot what I said what I was going to say is this oh yes 
that if you were to go to people who are on the other side of this, whoever those people are to you, the people on the other side are not saying, you know what my goal is? My goal is to destroy the church. That's what I want. If you're a traditionalist, if you go talk to a progressive, all they want to do is worship God. They just want to love the Lord just like you want to love the Lord. That's it. If we try to create unity around our doctrines, forget it. It will not happen. But I'll tell you this, and this is not to sound Pollyanna. I know how hard this is. But if we can at least say to each other, you know what? There's only one baptism, like Paul said. You're baptized, and I'm baptized. There's only one Holy Spirit. And the same Spirit that's working in me is working in you. There's only one Lord of all. If we can unite ourselves around that, there's hope. Now, we could divide over this. The church has proven this is what it typically does down through the centuries. We could do that, but you know what we lose? We lose our mission. Classrooms aren't built. People in Haiti aren't cared for. The people around this community aren't cared for to the same degree. It is not unity of opinion. It is unity of our love for Christ. All right. So we're going to come to this table. I invite the service to come forward too. You know, if you really think about what we do here at the Lord's table, it is nothing more than a continuation. A continuation of Jesus' mission to gather. To gather the people of the world to himself. You know, you think about the, the early church. Think about the 12 disciples Jesus called. You ever thought about this? Like, Jesus called, that we know, a man called Simon, who was a zealot, who hated the Romans. And yet Jesus also called to be one of the 12, a tax collector who collaborated with the Romans. Could you imagine the conversations that Simon and Matthew, the tax collector, had? But yet what united them was the host at the table. It was Jesus. So my friends, whether you are conservative, whether you are liberal, whether you are gay, whether you are straight, whether you are rich, whether you are poor, the question that we need to start asking ourselves is not, can we agree? The question needs to become, can we eat together at the table with the same Lord? who is the host. If you can eat with Christians who are not like you, my friends, there's hope. Come Holy Spirit.